Well, good morning. He's alive. Uh, I'm so glad to see you guys all here. My name is Steve Hopped. I'm one of three pastors here at Piney Ridge Church. You've seen Nathan already leading musical worship, and uh, Jason will come up at the close of our gathering. And we would all just in for them, I would like to welcome all of you here. If you're visiting, uh, we're so glad to have you with us. If you're a covenant member, we're so glad to have you with us. So uh, praise the Lord. Well, you know, when I was in fifth grade, there was a boy by the name of Eddie in my class. Eddie lived in the orphanage that was up the hill from our school. And looking back, I wish I had been kinder to Eddie. I wish I had befriended Eddie, but uh, I didn't. I wasn't. And in fact, Eddie was a perpetual thorn in my side. And uh, transparently, I'm sure I was a thorn in Eddie's side as well. Uh, Eddie was, uh, was a little scrawny kid, and his mouth was bigger than he, wa- than he was. And uh, Eddie would uh, constantly come up to me, and he would kind of be bouncing like a bunny on the halls of his feet, and he would be always kind of shadow boxing. Sometimes he'd connect a little bit, and he'd always be saying, come on, Hop, you want to fight? Huh? You want to fight? And I tried to ignore him as much as possible, but one day, this all came to a head on the playground. Eddie's friend Neil had gotten a toy out of a box of Trix cereal. I think it was called a silly rabbit boomerang. And what it was was two little cheap plastic popsicle stick type things that that kind of, you put them together like that, and supposedly, if you threw it the right way, it was supposed to act like a boomerang. Kids, a boomerang is something that you throw, if you throw it right, it comes back to you, okay? And so this was supposed to act like a boomerang, and so Eddie and Neil were in the middle of the playground, and they, they launched this thing, and it boomed, but it didn't ring. And it boomed right into the back of my head. Well, I turned around, you know, and I was all, you know, and I picked it up, and here they came charging toward me, you know, and... Uh, I won't get into all the details, but the end result was that Eddie had a bloody mouth, and we were both being dragged to the office. Well, I knew what was coming next, judgment. I would be called to stand before the principal to give an account of my actions. And I remember that feeling of waiting to go into his office and confess my sin. And I, I knew that I didn't have a leg to stand on. I knew that I would be weighed in the scales of justice and I would be found wanting. I knew that a guilty verdict would be declared and that punishment would be swift. Now... On a much larger and a more serious scale, we all will stand before the judgment seat of Christ one day. When Christ returns, we will stand before him and he will declare a verdict over us. 
Every human being somewhere down in their heart knows this. Even those who deny the existence of God know somewhere that they are going to have to give an account, even if they try to repress it. Those that have read the Bible and read the Bible know that that 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or bad, good or evil. We will stand before Jesus Christ, and like me in fifth grade, not one of us will have a good excuse. We're all guilty of sin. Paul says we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And our only hope for salvation... Our only hope from salvation, from the condemnation that is due to us because of our sin is faith in Jesus Christ. He paid the penalty for our sin. And if we are trusting in Christ, we are in Christ. And if we are in Christ, in one sense, His death is our death. His death was the death that was required for our sin. And because He's arisen, His resurrection is our resurrection, if we're in Christ. And this morning we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christ's resurrection was the most important event in human history. It was a day of victory. It was a day when Christ crushed the head of the serpent. It was the day that Christ defeated Satan and he defeated all of the ramifications of the curse that has been on the human race since the beginning because of Adam's sin. It was victory over death, victory over the power of sin. It was a day of power. It was a day of rejoicing. And it was the day that God the Father validated all that Jesus had done. He accepted His sacrifice and He declared that His work was indeed finished. Nothing more needed to be done to accomplish the salvation of His people. Jesus died to absorb the wrath of God on behalf of His people. And He died in their place as a substitute. And the resurrection was God the Father's seal of approval on all that He had done, and it was His acceptance of that sacrifice as an atonement for the sin of His people. It was indeed finished. Now, you know, I think that in the church, we we preach a lot on the cross of Jesus Christ, and rightfully so. And we see often the and, and many of us know the, the relationship between the cross of Christ and, and how that affects us and our sin and our, and our eternal destiny. But we don't often talk about what are the implications of the resurrection in the lives of those who are believers. And so I was, I was going through a, a devotional by John Piper called Solid Joys, And one day I noticed that he had listed 10 amazing things that we owe to the resurrection of Jesus. And I thought, wow, I'd like to share that. And since I'm preaching, that's what I'm going to do. This is not the main part of the sermon, but just as an appetizer, I want to share with you 10 amazing things 
that we owe to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm going to go through them quickly. I'm not going to preach on each one. But just, just let these words flow over you. If you're trusting in Jesus Christ for your salvation, let these words lighten your load and let it bring joy to your heart. The first thing that we owe to Jesus, or we owe to the resurrection of Jesus is we have a Savior that can never die again. Romans 6, 9 says, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. The second thing that Piper lists is repentance. Peter, when he was testifying before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 5, said, The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior, to give repentance to Israel. The third thing that we owe to the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the new birth. Peter again in 1 Peter 1.3 says, According to this great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Number four, forgiveness of sin. Paul in 1 Corinthians 5.17 says, If Christ had not been raised... Your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. The fifth thing that we owe to the resurrection of Jesus, of Jesus Christ is the Holy Spirit. And again, Peter, in preaching on the day of Pentecost, says that this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. The sixth thing that we owe to the resurrection of Jesus Christ is no condemnation for the elect. Paul in Romans 8.34 says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us, who indeed is going to condemn us. Number seven, we are assured of Jesus' personal fellowship and protection. After his resurrection, speaking to his disciples shortly before he ascended, in Matthew 28, 20, Jesus said to them and to us, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The eighth thing that we owe to the resurrection of Jesus Christ is proof of the coming judgment that I've already spoken of. In Acts 17.31, preaching in Athens, Paul says, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance by raising him from the dead. The ninth thing is salvation from the future wrath of God. Paul in 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says, We wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And finally, the tenth thing that we owe to the resurrection of Jesus is our own resurrection from the dead. If you are in Christ, you can say this with Paul, we know that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. 2 Corinthians 4.14. All of these all of these things that we know because and all these things that we have, all these things that were earned for us by Jesus Christ in His resurrection, they are yours 
if you're trusting by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. These are benefits that were earned for you by Jesus. It's like when a father goes to work and, he, and he's paid for his work but also might earn some benefits like health insurance for himself and his wife and for his, for his kids. The kids didn't work for that benefit, but those benefits are theirs because they belong to the father, because they are in the father's family. And if you are in Christ and trusting in Him for your salvation, then you belong to Him. You are part of His family, and the benefits that He has earned in His resurrection are your benefits as well. So we've looked at these ten things that, that Piper listed as, as, thing, as, as things that we have, benefits that we have as a result of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and I'm going to now spend the rest of my time on one more that we have, and we find it in the fourth chapter of Romans. And it's in verse 25, but verse 25 is like a sentence fragment. And in order to get at least some of the context of what Paul is talking about there and a little bit of background, we need to go back. And really, I should probably read all of Romans 3 and Romans 4, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to start with verse 16. So if you have a Bible, open it, please, to the fourth chapter of Romans. If you don't have a Bible, we have some on the back tables back there. Feel free to go get one. And if you don't have one at home, feel free to take it with you as our gift to you. But in the fourth chapter of Romans, in the New Testament, after the Gospels and Acts, we'll find, in starting in verse 16, this. And it says, that is why it depends on faith. Now, that's kind of a nebulous statement, isn't it? So I will come back and we'll look at verse 16 when we're finished reading this, okay? So if you're wondering what that's talking about. But that is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, in whom Abraham believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, Abraham believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations. As he has been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness." But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who was raised from the dead, Jesus, our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So let's go back now to verse 16 where it says, that is why it depends on faith. The it that he's talking about is righteousness. 
Righteousness is a, a moral uh, direction in your life that is submitted to the will of God and the commands of God. It's, uh, I, d- I don't want you today to think about your righteousness as necessarily the collection of all the good things you've done in your life. But rather, I want you to think about righteousness as, as the direction of your life and the things you've done. And also, I want you to think about it in terms of the verdict that will be declared over you at the judgment seat of Christ. As we saw earlier, I was hauled into the office to stand before the principal. And just like that, we are all going to stand before Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the judge of all the earth, and a verdict will be spoken over us. And it's going to be one of two verdicts. Either we are righteous or we are unrighteous. But that righteousness is not a relative righteousness, not a righteousness that's relative to other people. Christ is not going to say that you, John Whittington, well, you were better than, say, Adolf Hitler, or you were better than your next-door neighbor. Rather, the standard is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ lived his life in perfect glad-hearted obedience to his Father's commands and perfect glad-hearted submission to the will of God. That's the standard. And those who are declared righteous will be granted entrance into the kingdom of God to live forever in joy and peace and comfort and safety and security in the kingdom of God. And those who are declared unrighteous will experience what Revelation calls the second death and be cast into the lake of fire to suffer under the wrath of God forever for their sin. Well, if we take an honest and objective look at ourselves, we know that we don't have a leg to stand on, just like I didn't before the principle. We know that Paul, as I said, said, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And if we look at our lives, we know, if we look, take an honest look at ourselves, that we do not meet that standard. We're guilty and we deserve punishment. However, in Romans 4, Paul tells us that he's talking about a righteousness that depends on faith. And he uses Abraham as an example Now, Abraham was living in the land of Mesopotamia, which is modern-day Iraq. And he was living there with his wife, Sarah. They had no children. Apparently, he was a rather wealthy man. And one day, God spoke to him. Abraham was not a God worshiper. More than likely, he was a moon worshiper. But God spoke to him, and God called him. And God said, I want you to pack up everything you own and your family and your servants, and I want you to move. I want you to take this 2,000-mile trip to this land on the Mediterranean Sea, and I want you to settle there. And if you do that, I will bless you. 
and I will give you descendants, and I will bless your descendants, and I will give this land to your descendants, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. And Abraham believed that God would do what he said he would do. And Abraham had faith to pack up his wife and his servants and his belongings, and he took his nephew and he traveled a circuitous 2,000-mile trek to this land because he believed God and he acted in faith. And later in his life, God tested that faith. And he's, after, after Isaac had been born, when Sarah was 90 and Abraham was 100, the son of promise, and, it, and Isaac was a boy, And God said, I want you to take Isaac and I want you to go two days journey up this mountain and I want you to build an altar and I want you to gather firewood and I want you to sacrifice your only son, the son of promise. And Abraham believed God. And even though God had promised him Isaac, he trusted God so much that he did what he said to the point that he had the altar built and he had the wood, and he had Isaac on top of the altar, and he had the knife in the air ready to plunge it into his son, his only son, his son of promise. God stayed his hand, and God directed his attention to a ram who was stuck in the thicket to go get as a sacrifice, as a substitute for his only son. Abraham believed God, and he acted on that faith, and God credited it to him as righteousness. Because you see, Abraham was not sinless. We have evidence of that in the Bible. Abraham sinned, but God credited his faith as righteousness. And look in verses 20 to 22 in our passage. It says that he didn't waver concerning the promises of God. Instead, he believed God would do what he promised, and he grew strong in the faith, and he gave glory to God. And Paul says that's why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. In Romans chapter 3, Paul says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Now look back down in our passage in verses 23 and 24. Paul says the words, it was counted to him as righteousness, were not written for Abraham alone, but they were written for us too. The grace of God has provided a way for sinners to be saved from the wrath of God. A way for sinners to be declared not guilty and to be declared perfectly righteous. And the theological term for that is justification. And I stole a picture, a a figure from Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. And Mike McCann worked with me on this slide. And I want to tell you, we spared no expense to get this slide up here for you uh, So go ahead, Mike, when you have a chance to put that up. No expense on this slide. Uh, This is a picture of justification, okay? The first circle on the left, that's us. 
And the minus signs are sin. It's like we have a bank account of sin, full of sin. And if we look in verse 25 of our passage, it says that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses. Paul says later that our sin was nailed to the cross of Christ. And if we are trusting in Jesus Christ for our salvation, God takes that account full of sin and he wipes it out. He wipes out our debt. And that's us in the middle. But he doesn't leave us like that circle in the middle, does he? Not only does he take care of our sin by the cross of Christ, but verse 25 goes on to say, and he was raised for our justification. He takes the the perfect, sinless, glad-hearted righteousness of Jesus Christ and he credits it to our account. We don't deserve that. That is grace. That's awesome grace. That's the love of God for us in Christ. It's like a great exchange that takes place on the cross. God the Father took our sin and placed it on Christ so that the righteousness of Christ could be put on us. That's what 2 Corinthians 5.21 says. For our sake... God the Father made him who to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. To hammer home this point, I want to go to the Old Testament book, prophetic book of Zechariah. In Zechariah chapter 3, the prophet Zechariah has a vision. And in his vision, he sees like a heavenly courtroom. And the angel of the Lord is is standing in as judge, and Satan is the prosecuting attorney, and on trial is the high priest of Israel named Joshua. And I want to just go there now. Listen, let's listen in to what goes on. Zechariah says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him... He said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Do you see the picture? The filthy garments are sin. And through the cross of Christ and through his resurrection, he has taken away the filthy garments. And when we stand before Jesus Christ, if we have trusted in Him, in Him alone, to be our Savior, He will say to us, I'm going to put on you the righteousness of Christ. He's going to look at us and He's going to say, you're perfectly righteous like my Son. I don't deserve that. 
It's all by grace. It's the grace of God. It's the amazing love of God. So why does it say in verse 25 that he was delivered for our trespasses? Most of us get that. But he was raised for our justification. What's the connection between the resurrection of Jesus Christ and our justification? We'll see if I can help you see that relationship. At the resurrection of Jesus Christ... God the Father says to Jesus in the act of resurrecting him, as if he was saying to him, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I approve of everything you've done in your life. I approve of the sacrifice you've made. And I am pleased with you. God was saying to the world, this is my beloved son. Well, that's great, but what does that have to do with us? Well, if you've been around me very long in a piney family or a discipleship group or maybe even in sermons, you know that one of my favorite chapters in the Bible is Ephesians 2. And in Ephesians 2, Paul begins by saying, we were all dead in our trespasses. Spiritually dead, dead to God in our trespasses. We were by nature children of wrath. We deserved the wrath of God. We deserved the punishment of God for all eternity in hell. But then those two powerful words that begin verse 4. You were all dead. You're by children, nature, by nature, children of wrath, but God. But God, who's rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we were His enemy, even when we were rebelling, actively rebelling against Him. God made us alive together with Christ. But it goes on. And He raised us up with Him. And He seated us with Him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? So that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That brings me to tears. I don't deserve that. Thank you. Thank you that through faith in Jesus Christ, you've given all of this to me. Why? Because I'm in Christ and the benefits that He's earned are given to me. Followers of Christ are justified Because at the resurrection, God looked at Jesus and said, I approve of you. Because we're in Christ, listen to me, he said, I approve of you. But that's only true if you are trusting in Jesus Christ for your salvation. 
Listen to me. There's only one name under heaven by which men may be saved. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. We must trust in Jesus Christ alone. There is no other God. There is no other Savior, including you yourself. You cannot save yourself. You cannot be good enough to satisfy. You can't be good enough to meet the standard required to enter the kingdom of heaven. But God sent His own Son, a fulfillment of what He asked Abraham to do. God sent His own Son and sacrificed Him on the cross for sinners. And if you will hear that call of Christ today, and if you will respond in faith, listen, even if you respond in faith, that faith is not even your faith. None of this depends on us. And you know what I say about that? That's great. Thank you, God. Ephesians 2.8, I didn't read it, but it says, by grace you are saved through faith. And that's not even your own faith. It's a gift of God. And it's not of works, so that no man can boast unless we boast in Jesus Christ, because that's our only hope. So if you're not trusting in Jesus Christ today, I urge you to pray and ask God to show you the truth of the gospel. And if you hear the call, respond in faith. Come to Jesus. Jesus is alive. He's a living Savior, and He stands with His arms held open wide to you today. And He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me relieve you of the burden of trying to be good enough to go to heaven. Let me relieve you of whatever burden you're struggling and take my burden on you because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to Jesus. Call out to Christ because all, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you Thank you, thank you, thank you. I thank you that, it, that, that my salvation doesn't depend on my weak-hearted faith. My salvation doesn't depend on the things that I do in the body, but, Lord, that my salvation depends completely on you. And, Lord, that's my only hope. When I stand before you at the judgment, my only defense will be, I trust in Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit will move in the hearts of people today. I pray that you would would work in a saving way. I pray, Lord, that you would encourage the hearts of those who are believers. I pray that you would fill our hearts with joy for what you have done for us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.